Good morning. And we read Scripture uh, Sunday mornings, sometimes before, sometimes during the sermon, because we want God's Word to be front and center. I'm going to read just the first four verses of today's passage. It's Matthew chapter 22. Listen to verses 1 through 4. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes your word leaves us scratching our heads, but you have gifted us with your Holy Spirit, promising to lead us into all truth by your Spirit. So Lord Jesus, you first spoke this parable to instruct your followers and to warn those who were rejecting you. Help us to hear to understand, to receive, and to embrace your truth today. We ask that you would nourish our faith as we now worship you through instruction in your word. Help us gain confidence in confessing and proclaiming the truth about you, Lord Jesus, our Savior, our King. Amen. Please be seated. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to that passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 22, and I'd urge you to set it in your lap and hold it so you can see it, and let's all pay attention as we study it. Uh, Very recently, the adult Bible class, which meets at 1045, by the way, in the chapel classroom down the hall, uh, we went through the pastoral epistles, Paul's letters to Timothy, two of them, and a letter to Titus. And one of the helpful commentaries that I used was one by Robert Yarborough. It's part of the Pillar New Testament commentary. This week, I was, for whatever reason, looking at the back of the dust jacket, and it struck me that this is exactly what we're going to do this morning. They write about their commentaries with this paragraph. When God speaks to us in His Word, those who profess to know Him must respond with reverence, a certain fear, a holy joy, and a questing obedience. Love that. I had to look up the word questing. I wasn't quite sure what that meant. But it means to seek diligently after something. That's exactly what we want to have happen through the uh, preaching, the teaching, the reading even of God's Word. We want to respond with reverence a certain fear, a holy joy, and a questing obedience. Well, today's passage, Matthew chapter 22, contains a third parable of three, all of which are addressing a question that was asked in the previous chapter. Chapter 21, verse 23, the Jewish religious leaders had come to Jesus and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And by the way, who gave you this authority? Well, In last Sunday's sermon, if you were here, 
you heard Eric do a masterful job of unpacking the first two parables. Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your question unless you can answer mine, but then he proceeds to answer their question in a parable form three different times. By the way, if you did not hear that message, I'd urge you to listen to that. The, Eric used the analogy of a boxer. Jesus, like a boxer in, in a prize fight, is pinning his opponents, in this case the religious leaders, against the ropes, so to speak. In verse 28, he begins to answer their question by saying, what do you think? And then he tells a parable. And then in verse 33, he says, well, here another parable. And then he makes his point again. Well, just as those two parables deal with the authority that Jesus had and has, so does today's. Specifically, today's parable, the third in this sequence, and they, are, they do build on each other, this shows the ultimate consequences of rejecting God's authority. Now, this parable makes many people feel uncomfortable. And if that describes you, good. If it doesn't, then I'd urge you to buckle up and get ready to squirm. Seriously, this is a very serious matter that Jesus is bringing to the attention of the religious leaders, and at the same time, his disciples in the crowd are listening in. So let's look more closely at verses 1 through 4, the verses that I read, and then we'll read the remaining sections as we work our way through these 14 verses. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, can't you just see it? It's as if, and again, Jesus comes after his opponents with another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who were invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, a parable is a simple story that illustrates a spiritual lesson. Maybe you've heard the phrase, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. They are easily remembered. The characters tend to be bold. The symbolism is rich in meaning. Back in November of 2022, when we were working through the first part of Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Why do you speak in, in kingdom stories? And he gives a very lengthy and a very detailed answer to that. First of all, the, the word itself, parable, literally means to throw before or to cast alongside something, next to something else, in order to compare. That's what the word literally means. You take something observable, something objective, something physical, and then you compare it, in this case, to something spiritual, supernatural, in order to explain the supernatural. Parables, though, also require the hearer to engage in sort of an interactive process in order to actually understand the parable. Parables force us to wrestle with ambiguity. It's a fact that uh, some people will understand parables, but it's also a fact that others are not going to understand parables. That also is God's purpose. A parable can be a blessing, 
but for those who have willing ears to hear. But for those who don't, who are slow to hear, who have dull hearts, a parable can become an instrument of judgment. Jesus states this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. So let's define that term. Let's make sure we're on the same page with that. He's describing something, the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's referred to the kingdom of God. Here, the kingdom of heaven. It's the sphere of God's reign or rule. It, the dominion where God rules, where he is sovereign, where he is king. That, by the way, includes the human heart. I love to define the kingdom of heaven as the reign or rule of God over the human heart. It's much more than that, but it's definitely that. And it's definitely that that we're going to see on display here this morning. Now, in this parable, the king had actually previously honored the guests with an invitation. That's implied in the very beginning of this parable. Because you wouldn't know the exact time when all the food would be ready and all the preparations would be, would be ready. You couldn't determine that in advance like maybe we do today. It was customary to send out a second, quote-unquote, second invitation, namely the calling that occurs here. Send his servants to call to inform the people who had been invited, it's time. The meal is ready. Let's get going. And by the way, the lower your social status on the invite list, the more punctual that person was expected to be. This was all, a, all understood, all a matter of fact in that day and time. And a marriage might last for several days, and so it might include numerous meals. And so this one, though, is the first meal that's going to be served. It's ready. It's time to come. Attendance at these sort of events, weddings especially, especially the wedding of a king or his son, was a social obligation in Palestinian Judaism. Attendance at a patron's banquet was incumbent on social dependents, namely the people uh, who were in the empire, uh, for, for them to come. They, they needed to be there. A person normally would, would accept that invitation. It's more than just, hey, could you please come? It's, it's really a command, come. Even if you didn't like the host, you would accept the invitation. Notice what happens, though, in verse 3. When the servants are sent to say, it's time to come, please come, they would not come. The force of the term there is so strong, it literally means they are not willing to come. They are resolved not to come. They are determined not to come. And the tense of the verb is such that it it represents continual or repeated action. In other words, we could translate this as they persistently refused to come. To whom? To the king. It's like, are you kidding me? A king's invitation is both an honor and a command. Plus, the marriage of his son is a time for special joy in the kingdom. Yet... They refuse. It's an incredulous attitude, incredulous behavior to have in the face of a royal command, this nearly sacred duty of complying with a king's invitation. Rejection is open rebellion against the king. You see that? 
The Jewish religious leaders, and his disciples for that matter, and even the crowd, they would have understood all this. Hearers of this parable would marvel at what Jesus was about to say in this story. The foolishness, the impudence, the, even the treason of those who would insult the king. Now, this is probably Wednesday of Passion Week. The last week on earth for Jesus. He's going to be crucified on Friday. He's going to rise again, praise God, on Sunday. He's finally ready to fully unveil his identity. He is pulling no punches at this point. He wants to get across to his audience, especially the religious leaders, the importance of what is about to occur. Verse 4. The king not only graciously repeats his invitation. This, by the way, is the third time now. But he describes the lavish lavish preparations of the feast, and he does this in order to provide an incentive. Come, we we got some really good food items here. You're going to want to come. That's how I feel when Scott Haugen is is doing some meat and he tells me to come. I'm going to come, right? Here's the big idea. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's, I think it encapsulates what we're about to see. The king of heaven prepares lavish blessings, yet some reject him because of indifference or hostility or presumption. All of it results in judgment. Look at verses 5 through 7. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Verse 7, well, the king is angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Let's back up. Verse 5, they paid no attention. Literally, they made light of, they neglected, they were careless toward, good word there would be apathetic. They were apathetic to this repeated invitation to come and participate in this banquet honoring the king's son. I call this rejection by indifference. It's kind of a meh. I got better things to do, right? I got a farm to attend to. I got business. F.F. Bruce, the amazing Scottish preacher and uh, scholar and commentator of the early 20th century, calls this deliberately offensive indifference. A selfish preoccupation with our own things, our own enterprises, especially business, right, and money matters. They take priority over their loyalty to their king. Now, rejecting the king's invitation deliberately, what does that do? Well, it insults his dignity. He'd counted on their attendance. He'd made preparations, graciously provided a feast for them in order to honor his son. But they paid no attention. They were indifferent. Now, as we move through this parable, we're going to see that the king will severely judge those who spurn his kindness. 
God's judgment is certain. Here at New Life Church, we, from the pulpit, frequently implore, I know I do, especially implore folks to respond. We want, we want you to respond to God's overtures of grace and His love for your good. But how often do we think of the negative consequences? We don't often preach hellfire and brimstone, right? But those are part of the negative consequences here of spurning the kindness of the king. Do we allow that reality to scare us out of Hades? We need to. And that's part of this message this morning. Look at verse 6. Not only are there those who are rejecting through indifference, but now there's even a group who are rejecting the king's invitation through open hostility. They seized, they treated shamefully, and they killed. They, the, the, the term treated shamefully actually springs from the word hubris. That's a word in English that we get straight from the Greek. Hubris, which refers to what? Pride, arrogance. It was their own pride and arrogance that caused them to spitefully treat, outrageously treat, shamefully treat these servants that the king had sent. They were actively resistant. The others were just indifferent. I got better things to do. These folks were actively resistant. They were hostile. They were openly rebellious. They were treasonous. Essentially, they were declaring independence from their king. Now, let me just stop right there because as I'm saying those words, undoubtedly, we have pictures of people in our minds or we think of headlines that we've read this week, people who are openly hostile to the gospel, right? But I don't want us to skip over the fact that there are also many of us who have been or who are indifferent to the gospel. We may not be openly hostile, rejecting the king by killing his servants, but are we indifferent? Now in verse 7, this swift judgment of the king, this is not some arbitrary, capricious behavior on behalf of the king. No, this is a this is an act of justice because of their open rebellion. He takes care of that. I don't want to just leave this, though, as a picture of something happening in first century Palestine. This is a picture of anyone, of everyone, in any generation, right, who fails to accept the offer of the king, who fails to embrace the good news about Jesus Christ as our king. And this is essential to our understanding of the gospel. This is an invitation that cannot be turned down. It's an offer you cannot refuse without dire consequences. When the king says, come to the wedding feast, we respond accordingly, and we come, right? And if we don't, then we're rejecting. We're openly rebelling, whether by indifference or by hostile opposition. It, either way, it's rejection. Have you? Have you been indifferent to the gospel? Or are you? Have you been openly hostile to the gospel? Hopefully that's all past tense. 
Hopefully you're not going to kill the servants here delivering the message. Both, though, both are rejection of Christ. And when we reject the offer of the king who prepares this amazing feast for us, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but this is not only unacceptable, it's not only rude, it's an offense. It's an offense against God Almighty. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. He expresses it this way in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Or Hebrews chapter 10, verses 29 and 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. You didn't know that was in Scripture, did you? Verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Stay with me. Been a lot of bad news so far. We're going to get to some good news, but stay with me. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out and into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Yay! Finally, some good news, some amazing news. There is urgency in this invitation. The meal is, is ready uh, you could say, uh, it, it's, it's hot, it's getting cold, right? It's ready to go. The king wants to honor his son. But why were those previously invited, the ones who chose not to show up, why were they not worthy? Very simple. They failed or refused to accept the king's invitation. It's really simple. The implication there, accepting the king's invitation is what makes you worthy. That's it. There's nothing else. It's God's grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. All glory to God. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who responds, the one who obeys, the one who receives the invitation. These verses, 8, 9, and 10, right at the center of this parable are are rich. I need to slow down a little bit, and we need to kind of just simmer in the grace that's here. This patient persistent pursuit of the king to fill the room. He wants to honor his son. This is essentially now the fourth invitation to come. The king is, is relentless. He wants people to enjoy his provision. The extravagance of the king's provision and how he patiently pursues his guests. It's an extravagance of of generosity. He's he's not desperate, okay? The king is not desperate for company. 
No, this is an expression of his extravagant generosity. He simply wants to honor his son at this great wedding feast. And God's offer of the gospel, the good news about Jesus as our Savior, our Lord, our King, it's also extravagant. It's generous. And his inducements to us to come. And for some of us here, it took a long time. It took many inducements for us to finally receive that invitation. The arrogant, the proud, may spurn him, but God invites the lowly to his banquet. Again, he's he's not desperate for our company, but he graciously wants to invite us into his presence and to celebrate his son. Verse 10, the king accepts people that the Jewish establishment would regard as evil. The servants collect those who were considered bad and those who were considered good, therefore unacceptable for the bad. But the hall is full, and that's the point of the king's invitation. But there's more. (laughs) There's more to this parable. Verses uh, Verses 11 through 13, rather. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Woe. I call this rejection by presumption. Let me see if we can unpack it a little bit and make sense of this. Many, if not all of you, know that this passage is being preached at uh, several different congregations this morning, and so we hold a preaching meeting every week, typically on Thursdays, to kind of compare notes and encourage each other, and, and then we continue to text with each other back and forth as most recent as a couple hours ago, um, just to encourage each other as we're all of us, there's a half a dozen of us who are uh, preaching the same message. During our meeting on Thursday, John Roberts made kind of an off-the-cuff remark, our pastor at Gladstone, he said, yeah, it's like, kind of like men are wearing tuxedos and ladies are wearing fine dresses and there's, this, there's that one guy, right? Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops. He sticks out like a sore thumb. We've all been there. Well, we haven't been there. We've all seen that, right? Hopefully we've not been that guy. This part of the parable has to do with, I believe, with the impossibility of coming to the king's wedding feast on one's own terms. The king's question implies that suitable clothing was available, yet this man had not made use of that opportunity. St. Augustine, the great 4th century bishop of North, in North Africa, Bishop of Hippo, made this observation that it was customary that a wedding host during this day and time would provide garments for the guests. It's part of just honoring uh, what was going to happen. And so the man's fault was in his refusal to accept what was freely offered. He could have had the right clothing, but he declined to wear it. Well, what is this wedding garment? What do you suppose that might refer to? And again, 
because of prior references, primarily because of a quote that Jesus uses here. He's referring, I think, back to Isaiah chapter 61. He launched his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth by quoting from Isaiah 61, the first few verses. And now in verse 10, he says, the prophet says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. I think these wedding garments signify the fact of God's righteousness, this robe of righteousness. Isaiah goes on to say, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I think the wedding garment signifies righteousness. Whatever it is signifying, though, we know this. The response of this man who did not have on that wedding garment is no response. The text says he's speechless. The text could easily say he's muzzled, because that's the word. He's muzzled. He has no excuse. The man's guilty silence, in fact, condemns him. There's presumption here. The man's presumption to come on his own terms has insulted the king and the occasion, and he's cast into outer darkness. Verse 13, that's an expression that's often used to to denote a very uncomfortable place where uh, those who had been rejected would go. So probably a lot more to that too, but I won't go into that this morning, except to say that Professing Christians, this, this gentleman at the feast is in a sense professing, I'm a professing guest here, professing Christians who insult God's grace by presuming on it without honoring the Son will be banished from God's presence. And we know from verse 15, that after this passage, that the Jewish religious leaders, they too had nothing more to say. They realized they were speechless as well. Well, now we get to the real fun part, verse 14. Jesus now succinctly explains his parable. In fact, in seven words. We have eight in the English, but it's actually seven words. For many are called, but few chosen. We, we supply the English word are. Just seven words. Some of you are thinking, Tim, why don't you just use seven words? We would have been done quite a while ago, and we can go have another cup of coffee. Well, Jesus, I'm not Jesus, that's why. (laughs) This statement, many are called but few chosen, this is not to be interpreted through the lens of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is going to come later, and in his letters, he's going to talk a lot about being called being chosen. This is not the effectual call of Romans chapter 8, for example. A better question to ask here would be, what, well, what does this mean? What would it have meant to the ears of the Jewish religious leaders? What would it have meant to the ears of Jesus' disciples? What about to the crowd? What would they have thought of when he said, many are called, but few are chosen? The many and the few indicate a weeding out process. Not all of those who are called will turn out to actually be chosen. With the term chosen, we get introduced, though, to a much bigger concept, namely the sovereignty of God. Those who come 
choose to come. But they do that because they've been chosen by a sovereign God and by his purposes. That sentence I just shared is, uh, is a mystery. We may never fully fathom the depth of that, but we believe that by faith. And this man's behavior demonstrated that he, in fact, was not chosen. Earlier, a few chapters ago, in, in chapter 20, uh, in another parable, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Jesus had said this, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. That statement is very similar to this statement. Many are called, but few chosen. And I believe unbelievers today, folks who do not profess allegiance today, and if there are any in the sound of my voice here, whether in person or uh, through live stream, unbelieving people need to understand this biblical claim that you face eternal judgment. By rejecting the invitation of the king, that's what you face. But at the same time, professing Christians, and this room is full of professing Christians, we need to know that we're not exempt from this same danger. If we replace the true gospel with any substitute of our own design. I was struck just a few minutes ago, long enough though uh, to, to put my bookmark in here, I was struck with something the Apostle Paul does say in Galatians chapter 1. So this is, this is free, this was not planned, but I think this will make the point. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in his first chapter to the uh, churches at Galatia, beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is serious business. During our prayer time this morning with uh, the worship team and everybody who's participating uh, from up on stage, we always have a prayer time. Both uh, two of my brothers made the observation in their prayer just how joyful it is to be invited to the wedding feast, to the marriage feast, and the beauty and the joy of that. And afterwards, I confessed to them. I said, wow, I'm really glad you prayed that because my emphasis this morning was going to be primarily on judgment, right? Because I think it's important for us to understand the consequences. What's at stake here by rejecting the invitation of the king, whether it's through open hostility or just simple indifference? There are multiple conclusions that, that can be drawn from this passage of Scripture, and we're going to end, trust me, we're going to end with some really good news. First of all, though, this parable was addressed to primarily to the Jewish religious leaders, but it was spoken in the presence of Jesus' disciples and within earshot of the crowd. By the way, that crowd who had just lauded him when he entered Jerusalem and who, in a couple of days, they're going to demand that he be crucified. 
That's where this is all taking place, right? And the religious leaders have, in fact, rejected the king's invitation. And, in fact, they're about to kill the very son referenced in that parable. Yet, God pursues others to enjoy his company and provision. Praise God for that. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. God is the God of love, but also justice. God is the God of mercy, but also judgment. God is the God of grace, but also righteousness. He'll not tolerate forever wickedness and rebellion. He won't. And so Jesus is providing this warning of judgment to come. What's our response? What's our response to the positive invitation of come and join the marriage supper of the Lamb? Come and join the feast that is still yet to come. Come and be part of my kingdom. Are we indifferent? Are we openly hostile? Are we presuming on God's grace? Those responses end in judgment. But this parable is an invitation to enter into his fellowship, into his kingdom. And Jesus is, in fact, I believe, also pointing to something yet to happen. Yet to happen in our time frame. He's pointing to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Eric is going to read a benediction at the close of this morning's worship gathering from Revelation chapter 19. It'll be on the screen. You can listen carefully. We're invited to something wonderful if we have stepped into receiving the offer of God's grace. You know, every Sunday, and we did it, this, we did it today, we're doing it right now, we rehearse here at New Life Church, we rehearse the gospel story, how that uh, God created all of us and everything around us, and then because of sin, we have fallen into sin, and it has distorted His wonderful creation. But God had a plan, and He has redeemed us from that. And then the fourth point that we rehearse every week is the restoration to come. And the restoration to come includes this marriage supper of the Lamb, which has been purchased by the blood of our Savior Jesus. So I I urge you today, if you've not already, accept the King's invitation and be a part of this coming supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. He's been slain for our sins. And if you have, then act accordingly. (laughs) Follow the footsteps of our King daily. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking a parable that would have made sense to the ears and the minds, maybe not the hearts necessarily, but to those who first heard it. Thank you for using this uh, metaphor, this analogy, to help us better understand the serious consequences of rejecting your offer of salvation through indifference, through open hostility, or even through presuming upon your grace and coming to you on our own terms. Father, may you clothe us in the robe of righteousness procured at the price of your blood, Lord Jesus. And may we step into this future 
this wonderful time that we look forward to, this blessed hope that we have of being in your presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Would you drive the truth of this parable home, deeply home into our hearts, cause it to take root in order to bear fruit for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.